0: Please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes. I hope you enjoy. Today, my guest is Annie Lamont. Annie is the acclaimed author of more than a dozen books of fiction, nonfiction, and collected essays, known for her honest, insightful, and humorous approach to subjects such as faith, loss, and the creative process. She's the author of Help, Thanks, Wow, Stitches, Bird by Bird, and Hallelujah Anyway, Rediscovering Mercy, where she argues that kindness towards others, beginning with myself, buys us a shot at a warm and generous heart, the greatest prize of all. This is a special episode of Insights at the Edge in which we are broadcasting Annie Lamont's session that was originally part of Sounds True's Self-Acceptance Summit. In this episode, Annie and I spoke about what she refers to as radical self-care and how it is the foundation of all true health and healing. We also talked about her own challenges with self-esteem and issues related to body image and what it's taken for her to develop a sense of true belonging in which she's able to welcome all of herself and others and receive such welcoming in return. We also talked about how women are trained to put other people first and how self-acceptance is actually a feminist issue and a prerequisite for truly being there for others. Here's my conversation with Annie Lamont. I wanted to start by talking about something that you've been writing about of late, which is the topic of, you call it radical self-care. This idea of self-care, and what that means to you, and why for some of us it's so hard, and. Also, you know, something like self-care, I think some people might think, oh, come on, isn't this just self-indulgent? Do we really need more, you know, Anne Lamont's talking about self-care? Isn't this just one other way that we cocoon in on ourselves?
1: Um, No, I think it's the opposite. I think it's the beginning of all healing and health. Um, well, the reason it's so hard is because we often grew up around alcoholic or mentally ill or very unhappy people. And especially girls learn to get their self-esteem and their sense of, of purpose and meaning on this life by taking care of everybody else. I've written before that I was like a little flight attendant to the family. And I, I mean, I was mixing drinks, blender drinks at seven. And... Um, for me, when what, what, I in the '50s, when I was coming up, that people said, "Oh, he's so full of himself. Oh, she's so full of himself." So this was a criticism, and you learn not to be full of yourself. You learn to be a person for others. But but that meant coming from an empty an empty glass instead of a glass that was, you know bubbling over with love and and, and excitement and, and um, enthusiasm for life and curiosity. And it meant that you were pretty much depleted all the time by having first taken care of the other people in the family, especially the parents. So to start doing radical care means that, A, you're your own parent, and B, you're going to get that radical care because you're going to be providing it. So I don't mean um, anything narcissistic. I mean... Um, I mean, being with yourself the way that you would be with somebody you love, or even somebody you had just met who was in, um, in in anxiety or worry, you would say, can I get you a cup of tea? Automatically. So we developed the habit of saying to ourselves, can I get you a cup of tea? If you knew the person a little better, you would say, can I make you a bath? Can I make you a bath with bubbles and Epsom salts? And we learned to do that with ourselves. And so we learned to come from a place of uh, of abundance for lack of a better word of or of having filled up so that we can offer that freely without going into depletion and the ensuing cellular anxiety that that causes. and causes us as very little children which is where all of the um harshness with ourself begins, is depriving ourselves of what we need because we weren't able to get it from these very distracted and often um, mentally um, unhealthy parents.
0: So tell me a little bit more about that, how you see the roots of our lack of self-acceptance coming from our early childhood environment and experience. I think part of what in this series on self-acceptance people are really questioning is, in their own experience, where were the roots for each one of us of how it became so hard just to do simple, kind things for ourselves, like you're describing, making time for a bath, whatever it might be? Well, if you grew
1: up around alcoholism or mental illness, as a small child, you agreed not to see what was going on because it made everything worse um, for the parents Because to be observed. And what they were relying on was smoke and mirrors and, and you know, the shades being drawn. And um, you sign a, some of us signed a contract at about four years old, uh, metaphorically, that we would agree not to see what was going on. And we would work with whatever version of reality they fed us. So we lost that ability to be narr- to be trusted narrators of our own reality in our own story so that we learn to walk on eggshells and and um, to, to to sort of suss things out vibrationally like when I was a kid everybody mostly men and boys wanted you to play that game where you put your hand on top of theirs and they slap you but you could be a five or six year old child you could weigh you know 40 pounds and you're getting slapped because you're not vibrationally um, prepared for an attack so um you learn to be, you develop the skill of hypervigilance, which takes us away from our own truth, our own core, our own essence or soul or spirit. And um, and you learn to help people, grown-ups, mostly I won't name names, but you learn to help them feel about the catastrophic behavior that they are um inflicting on on their marriage and on their children. And you help them by kind of cooing and you learn to suck it down. You learn when I was a child, I would there was a book out called The Highly Sensitive Child. And um <laughs> I was I bet you were diagnosed as such also, although I think I'm a little older than you are. I'm 62 right now. But um So if you were a highly sensitive child, you were shamed for this, which is to say shame for being open and permeable and receptive. All the things that sounds true is actually helping people learn to recover. And, um, And so you learn to, you try to develop slightly thicker skin and, you know, people, parents roll their eyes at you and they say, oh, for Pete's sake, now what? because you're sad because you're noticing the cover of the National Geographic which has India, like children from India on it who are emaciated or you have been to the pound and you can see that a lot of the animals aren't going to get homes and it grieves you and it's not convenient for the parents to have such a sensitive child if they're slightly crazy or if they're completely faking it and trying to hold unhealthy marriages together so for me, that's where it begins, is, is in denying rea- de- denying reality as I alone uniquely could film it from behind my eyes. I saw it and I said, I must be wrong. And my parents would explain that I was wrong and they were actually very happy and that dad wasn't um, um, passing out on the couch. Dad was taking naps after dinner or that this or that or that, the, you know, Whatever it was, you were corrected. And so getting back that ability to care for yourself means being able to trust that what you see is really going on. And when people who are writing memoirs or writing anything really say to me that something happened, I believe them. And, the, and their parents and their families and their aunts and uncles didn't. And when they said that this uncle was doing this to them, people shame them for that. And I believe them. And when we can see that this stuff really happened and really hurt and damaged us and pretzelized us, we can begin to have that deep and abiding compassion that is where all healing begins.
0: Now, I want to underscore just for one more moment this note that we started on about radical care, because Mm -hmm. you you said, Annie, that this is in in some ways, you know, I don't know if you use the word lever, but it's like this critical need this critical turning point and I'm curious in your own development and evolution was there a certain point where you recognized oh you know this is something I'm gonna have to give to myself I'm gonna have to do this and you know I say this because I was somebody who just soldiered on for so long I mean you mentioned your age I'm 54 now and you know it's only in the past decade that I got it that I had to really take good care of myself that I couldn't just you know be the uh, indomitable warrior at all times, without stopping. And I needed to be the one to take this good care.
1: Yeah, or you didn't have to, but then the, then you would become less and less authentic, and less and less vital, and and plugged in umbilically to the energy and the beauty of the universe. So it's really a decision and a choice, I think. But I can say that I first found salvation. In, when the uh, first issue of Ms. Magazine came out when I was 16, and I remember, I was just talking to, to my um, partner about this, that my best friend, Pammy, who I've written about so much, she, yeah. I, she was an emancipated... Um, minor in San Francisco where we were going to high school and we opened it and I know you did this with your cousins when you were little when you get a Sears catalog and you'd spread it out over both your laps and you turn the pages and everything on when, on your side was stuff you could have or yeah. you're jealous that they had something cooler on their side and blah blah, blah. but we oh, we sat side by side with Ms spread out on our laps and we read it that way and we went oh my god and a switch was thrown And I remember her apartment. I remember what we were eating. We were eating salami and Hershey bars. And and that was the moment when I knew that I was gonna be able to find a place for myself in the world, that women were saying, we're here, we're angry, we're gonna tell the truth, we're gonna tell you our stories and we wanna hear yours. And I went, it was like sitting next to a Buddhist gong It was like being in a foreign country in Morocco or something where I could suddenly hear an English language station.
0: Oh, my. You know, it's so interesting because I think you're the first person who's really placing in this conversation series radical care, self-care, as a feminist issue. Yes.
1: Oh, absolutely. But again, it goes back to what the times I was raised in, um, the... 50s and Eisenhower and the post-war and whatnot where women were a certain way and what that meant was that you were the flight attendant and you hustled around and, you, and girls were raised to say to men oh, can I get you a plate? Like the men couldn't walk to the buffet and get their own plate because they were talking about such lofty and, and life-changing, world-changing subjects and so we bustled around like little geishas and got men Platters of food, you know, and um, and and then it made them so happy. If they even noticed, sometimes they took the plate without even acknowledging it. And um, and and as you said, you soldiered on. And um, so it's for me. It was definitely. Um, One of the crippling experiences of being raised in the 50s and and in the early 60s before the women's movement was this sense that you brought men food and they might not even notice you standing there, that you picked up after them, that you helped them feel better about what they had said to their wife, your mother, or what your mother had said or done to all of you the night before you could you code them you enabled them you patted them you became the mother this is what girls did and you mothered your mother and you were the wife to your father so um it's very very hard to have uh, a, a a authentic self-esteem when it is so dependent on pleasing sick people so when feminism came along and you know in Thirteen. I'm. Let's see. I was born in '54, so '67. Summer of Love is is coinciding with it with a um, really burgeoning awareness of of um, the movement and these writers, including people like Nora Dunn and Gloria Steinem, who are my two heroes, um, Audrey and Rich and Sylvia Plath. Everybody we were reading. Little by little, they were telling you that the way home was going to be in telling this kind of truth you would never been allowed to tell before and in noticing that you were very, very depleted by all the life force and energy in you going out to others, to the professors, to the male teachers, to the authority figures, to the government. It was all men, you know, and they said, well, it has been. And when they taught us to sit together, they taught us to listen. And what they taught us to do is to listen to other women and girls and to hear that we were all in the same boat, that this was an institutionalized oppression against um, power, the terrifying power of women. So when I was learning how how to care for other girls and women by listening, by Getting them cups of tea by sitting with them um, with no plan, and maybe a bowl of uh, you know black bean soup or some odd hippie food, and 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 telling them my truth as a form of love and as a form of empowerment. Little by little, I we I think collectively began to get that the buck stopped with us, and that we couldn't do it without having it.
0: Hmm. When you're talking about these feminist heroes, I'm thinking of the kind of bravery that's required to really stand up in any generation and be a truth teller, especially if it's not matching with whatever the collective norms are. And I'd love to know more how you see the connection between inner bravery, and it could be in really small acts, and self-acceptance.
1: Um, Well that's a really interesting question. I I feel like I could write about it after thinking about it for some time. But um, the culture, the books and the movies when I was coming up were all about the bravery of men. That the bravery was actually about war and and aggression and protecting the women folk and the children and it was all this um, it was all associated with physical power and, um, and elit- elitist positions from which you might bend down to help the, um, the people that you are responsible for because women weren't responsible for themselves. And, um, with bravery, you know, it, it's funny because as a as a, a girl who wanted to be a writer, and I had a gift. I mean, it was pretty clear I, I was a good storyteller, and because I was a frightened child in a crazy household, I was really paying attention. And those are probably, you know, the, that was so important to being a writer was to be somebody like Henry James said, On whom nothing is lost. But when I start to read the women um, who uh, in a literary way mothered the movement and they were saying stuff that you just couldn't say like Sylvia Plath or uh, my mind will go blank now but they were saying stuff that you weren't supposed to Nora, Nora Ephron um, it was life-giving, it was exhilarating and, and you introduced me with one, one of the words you used was confessional and it was in these ma- it was in Virginia Woolf's um, journals uh, which I read from the age of about 18 till 21. I read every word of her journals and I read every word of her letters, of the collected letters, and that she would say the truth of how how terrifying it was to even be here, to be a really highly intelligent and sensitive woman with mental illness in a man's world and in such a... um, esteemed and and, uh, uh, exacting and pressurized world of Bloomsbury, say, in Virginia Woolf's case. And when she would tell the truth, when, when I read Mrs. Dalloway, when I read that, how hard it was for these women who looked so great or who had achieved so much, that's what gave me the courage to think that maybe I had a story to tell. And of course, another thing—I think this ties in, Tammy—that one of the things that happens when you're young and you want something really badly, like to be an artist, is that you love other people's voices so much that—and and no one likes the sound of their own voice. Like, thank God, I'm not going to have to listen to this recording we're doing today because, like, I don't love to hear the sound of my own voice. But you hear other—you hear Ann Beattie, or you hear. Um, Denise Levertov or Isabel Allende or whoever and you want to, and you think that that's how you hope to sound and you really can't tell the truth in, in somebody else's voice which is just so horrible but um, you can only tell the truth in your voice, whether or not you fictionalize it as being a person with a different dialect or whatever. So women telling the truth, you know, both genders telling the truth, marginalized people saying how enraged they were at their treatment, at the way their children were treated, at the way their old and invisible parents were treated in warehouse gave me um, the belief in myself that the most precious thing you had was your own truth and at the same time the most extraordinary thing you had to share was your version of things
0: beautiful thank you the connection between truth telling and the bravery it takes to do that and how that is a kind of self-acceptance in and of itself you're accepting yourself to be confessional and speak out
1: yeah And also you find that it's so life-giving when other people do and they make you laugh, like Laurie Moore, for instance, when um, I first read some of her books and they were so vulnerable, but laugh out loud funny. And people, I always tell my writing students, write what you'd like to come upon. And for me to read somebody who's telling the absolute down and dirty, your best girlfriend truth and making it funny, it's chemotherapy. It is so exhilarating and it's a form of salvation. And I've talked often about how um, for a lot of us that were shy and very odd, bright kids, the first salvation, as much as Jesus or Buddha or whoever might be, um, was in the written word. And that when we were four and five and six, and discovering that out of these flat, two-dimensional pages, these entire worlds were created into which we could enter and get very lost and then get very found, that was when we had an inkling that we were going to be semi okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And of
1: course, I was reading all that. Um, I bet I read all the same girls about the same girls you did. I read Little Women and Little Men. And, and when I was in the when I was young. Um, people read Robert Louis Stevenson a lot to their kids, it was funny, and Jack London. But we also I read Pippi Longstockings when I was six and Beezus and Ramona and um, uh, Wrinkle in Time and all these hero girls and we found these books whereas the, on the bookshelves of, in our classrooms if there was a collection of biographies, 25 great Americans, they were all men. There were four or five of them were women. Um, Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt and, uh, well, Madame Curie, but that wasn't, you know? And so if you went by what the culture was telling you to read, it was all these um, heroic men and um, their accomplishments and their achievements. And if you found the books that other girls and teachers were thrusting at you, there were these amazing girls like Pippi Longstocking, I can actually say, gave me life because... Uh I was, a, I was powerful and I was not um, brave like she was and you know she had one black sock and one white sock and I mean one brown sock and one black sock and she had these kind of nerdly little neighbors Annika and I can't remember the boys names they were just scared to death which was more how I was and kind of am still on some days and um, and you know she would just talk them out of that and convince them to come along and do some great adventure with her that might move might involve moving the horse out onto the porch you know bodily or or um, deciding not to bring Mr. Nelson the monkey at the last minute but she could because of her power and her confidence in it all which I think would be a great title for a book by the way you should commission it it all she convinced other people to be braver and to be bigger than they they were without her, you know, and to have bigger and bigger boundaries, margins and peripheries and, you know, to go a couple more concentric circles out into the world and the mystery than they would have been otherwise. So um, I kind of forgot what the question was. Well, I
0: want to pick up on a thread because you said when you're afraid still some days that that happens, sometimes you are afraid. And I'm curious how you bring an attitude of Self acceptance to being afraid, and even more so, self care when you feel afraid. How do you yeah. treat? How do you treat yourself in those situations?
1: Well, I think it all ties in with uh, what we were talking about earlier about sitting down with women and girls, and 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 trusted and beloved men, um, and finding out that if that we're all in the same boat, you know, that, that we all have scary thoughts, we all have judgmental thoughts, you know, the the system works for two reasons, one, that we're not all crazy on the same day, and, <laughs> and that our minds don't have PA systems, you know, but it turns out, if I've written and presented something for publication, it means that I know damn well that it's universal, so, um once you realize that everybody is struggling with scary things like being here and and uh, you know having a, a terrifying new president or you know the the um, the beauty and the vulnerability of, of of falling in love or of becoming a mother or an aunt or an uh, uncle or, or a father and just this stuff is so scary. It's not like it is on T V. It's not like it is in the movies. It's it's rough and it's messy and beautiful and blessed and it's all swirled in together and because I have a little OCD I would like things to be organized like in a silverware drawer where you had everything kind of messy over where the forks are and you had everything exhilarating and uh where the knives are and then the soup spoons would be like very touching tender spiritual stuff and and then the you know whatever but it's not like that and so when you talk to people and they're all saying they're saying the magic words which is me too I know exactly what you're saying, and you can hardly breathe when you're 15 and 16 years old, or 45 or 62, with the relief that you're not crazy, and that and you're laughing, and it's a communion. You could cry because of the relief and the union, and um, and when you get there. You get to the place where of tenderness towards your own self because you're completely acceptable. I mean, I've sat with you. I was telling my boyfriend Neil about sitting with you with at the Jack Cornfield um, talk where he had us look into each other's eyes for like five or ten minutes, and um, and I felt that we were basically the same person. You know that any division between us was gone in the pools of our our. Our loving eyes on each other because I don't look at you and think, um, I wonder if I I wonder if she could do something about that or, boy, those are the most lesbianic shoes I've ever seen or whatever. (laughs) I just think that I I fall into you, and because you would hold space for me to fall into you, and you were falling into me, then I can fall into me, and you can fall into you, and then I realize there's not a huge amount of difference. in any way, but space—you know, time and space—which have never been my strong suits anyway—that um, there is not really um, a difference or a, a chasm between us. And so, once I can have that with you, I can have it with me. You were sort of like a training—you know, you or the women and the and the and the safe men I've been with, have been like training wheels for me to fall into myself that way, and just feel so gentle and um, tender-hearted, and. Um, And to smile and say, you know, if you told me something just ghastly that you had thought earlier today on your way to work, I wouldn't go, oh, my God, I had no idea. Like, Timmy Simon would think that that's so unevolved. I would laugh and it would probably make my day. And I would say the magic words, God, me too. Mm
0: -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. makes
1: it possible for me to have this really rich tenderness For the predicament that we share, which is being spiritual beings in these bodies that at some point, of course, you're a mere slip of a girl, but, you know, at some point they begin to fail. They change, they're disappointing, your feet hurt a lot and your vision goes, you know, And, um, and I can have this really deep tenderness for it because of other people's deep tenderness for me. And also, uh, another thing is, as a kind of ERZOTS missionary in the world, for me to be able to say to people, I know exactly what you're talking about, I used to be there too, I don't do that anymore. I, who have a really severe cellulite disorder, swim at the drop of a hat in front of anyone, anywhere, because I don't want to wake up at 85 and not have swum in pools and warm waters and beaches all over the world and in everybody's backyard because I felt shy about my size. And people go, Yeah, I know, but yeah, I know, but it's this and you're thin and this and that and and I go, I know. You wanna see my size? And then I then we'd laugh and then I show I show them what radical self-care would look like, which is to rub lotion on them as, as a laying on of hands to my own self. And once or to put a tattoo on them or a decal. Put some lotion and some delicious-smelling lotion, and a decal on my thighs, and to say I insist, as a radical act, on the right to swim every day if I want in front of everyone for the rest of my life. And I've written that I wouldn't um, swim with a man on our first date, (laughs) but I would on our second. And you know what? He's got a problem with my thighs. I can't do anything about that. But um, A, this one doesn't, and B, I no longer do. I think, hit me with your best shot, you know? And mostly at beaches, there are these horrible, firm, young people, and you know what? They're like a different species for me, and I think those are beautiful gazelle, and I'm more like a wildebeest. We are not in, we do not need to be compared, but that took a lifetime of, of bodywork and therapy and this um, commitment to revolutionary self-acceptance, and that you know, I uh, didn't wasn't some code in my mind that I broke. But whereas I come from a family that worshipped the mind and and the code breaking and the figuring it out, and it turns out, figure it out is not a good slogan. And it didn't come from something in my brain that I suddenly grokked. It came from you take the action, and then the insight follows. A lot of lotion, a lot of Decals. A lot of um, girlfriends who look pretty much like me, which is to say 62, and I, I forgot to go to the gym after I had a child, and I certainly meant to um, 27 years ago and still haven't. So <laughs> we go together, we stick together, and we we don't live in what our thighs or our tummies look like. We live in our hearts, we live in our spirits, we live in our love for each other, we, love, we live in the glory of the ocean and the sea and in a swimming pool so it's partly a decision and it's often what are the actions you could take that would lead to the insight that that bodies are beautiful and all bodies are heroic feet you know which are maybe a one of our homeliest parts are so such heroes i mean to carry us around this earth and to carry us in protest marches and to have a standing up rocking children to sleep for hours i had a colicky baby um, it, um and 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 that's the insight and the action the action might be toenail like i don't think you'll be able to see this on the um i don't know if you can see this on the camera but for the women's march Um, the day after inauguration, I got this incredibly beautiful confetti on my fingernails, this confetti polish, because that's an action I can take. That is like, let there be light and let it begin with me. And I look at them and they make me laugh because they look like what spiritual truth is, which is it's all good or it's all a trip, it's all beautiful. And I got them because of another woman who was a stranger who was sitting next to me at this salon and she was just enormous and she was a dance teacher and and, um, and she had these terrible glasses on and I just fell in love with her on the spot and she was getting this polish and I said are you going to the women's move- march on Saturday and she said no but I just want to be prepared that whatever happens on Friday which was the inauguration I am going to look beautiful and I am going to dance So I got this confetti polish and I'm going to keep getting it so that I'll remember no matter what happens, I'm going to feel beautiful and I'm going to dance.
0: Now, Annie, I'm glad you brought up the issue of body image and body weight. And in your writing, you use a lot of humor when you talk about your own body and the process you've been in to accept and love and go out to the beach. And I'm curious, do you think that humor helps with self-acceptance related to body image, or is it actually covering a lot of more painful issues or both?
1: Well, I've written a lot about the painful issues, too. I mean, I've tried to be very, very honest about how excruciating it was to be born a little girl in this culture that before I knew it was all Jean Shrimpton and long, straight hair, which I was never going to have. I was a child who was bullied really savagely mostly by boys about having kinky hair and i was I weighed no pounds I was just just you know at at ten I weighed about fifteen pounds and and my mom was very short and um and very heavy and my father was tall and skinny and 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 had a terrible contempt for my mother and her weight. It was a huge thing in our family and um and so I grew up in this kind of state of held breath of A, don't let that happen to me and B, don't let me stay like this. And um, so I have tried to be as honest and as unfunny as I can about the, the soul death that it causes to be judged and even to be looked at it a certain way. Like I'm still, it's funny because I you've seen me address a thousand people with a pretty, pretty amazing level of comfort. And at the same time, I am so shy, and I don't like people to look at me, and I don't like I don't do crowds, and I don't eat with people I don't know, and so it's all like all truth, it's a paradox, and um, and so I have had a tremendous amount of voices in my history telling me that I was simply not okay because of the way I looked, and I internalized them, and um, and it took probably 50 of, no it took longer than that i mean i can remember just being shamed as a little child for the way i looked and my parents anguish my mother's Anguish that I had such frizzy hair and her efforts to tame it and getting it straightened and the smell of the chemicals and the, you know, and then my internalized terror of weather because if you had hair like mine, you could sort of moose it into submission. But if there was weather, if there's fog, you know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, rain, drizzle, anything, swimming, it all reverted to its very, very, very curly self. So, um, it was most of my life, and I also had migraines as a little girl, you know, I started getting them when I was five, and so that was another thing that I was just emaci- emaciated, I was probably just a thin child, but I was referred to in this way, where strangers who felt confident to stop parents and comment on their children would say, do you feed her, and stuff like that, And um, and so besides having a very, very Thin frame and this curly hair. I was also having to lie on the floor of bathrooms to cool down the migraine because there was really no medicine. And of course, other girls would come into the bathrooms, and it. I grew up with such deep shame about my physical um, self, and um, and it's the the self acceptance is about both the way that you are seen and the way that you are looking out at and terrorized that they're, to, you know, terrorize and trying to come up with an explanation for why everybody is so unhappy and mentally ill and why your parents have such huge problems and and the only way to do that as a child is to think that that it's you, that there's something defective in you, there's something annoying in you and you know this probably before five or six, but I'm aware of it by then, and then you start to do the only thing, um, the only option you have, which is to try to correct yourself, or squelch yourself, because it seems to be annoying, or to cause problems, my parents couldn't stand that I was so sensitive, you know, it drove them crazy, they said, oh, for Christ's sake, I can remember crying when my little baby brother came home from the hospital as a baby and when I was holding him I was and my brothers and I were having our my brother and I were having our pictures taken by a friend of my parents and I was weeping because I understood that this baby this infant was doomed that the family was crazy that my mother was so heavy my father drank that they hated each other in a very polite sort of Harold Pinter way And when I started to cry while the pictures were taken, my father said that was fine, but I had to go get a clean artichoke heart from the kitchen and cry into that. And that was called the tear bottle. So if I wanted to cry because I was terrified about a baby being destroyed, (laughs) that I needed to direct my tears into an empty bottle. And so it leads to not the fear that there's something deeply wrong with you, but the understanding that there is um, something so defective about you that, first of all, you must keep this and almost everything else a secret, and that, too, you must correct it. And um, it's pretty hard. It's it's taken almost my whole life to get to the the acceptance of the beauty and wildness of my soul and my brain and, and the gratitude for this brain that has actually been Oftentimes, like having kind of a crazy roommate, like having Michael Keaton up there. <laughs> up. but um little by little, and with endless birth coaching from other sources and women and literary, literature and and safe men and um, and and other cultures in my church, um, I know I've said this in front of you before, and and I've written about it, but my Jesuit friend Tom Weston said the five rules of being a uh, Grown-up American are that one you must not have anything wrong with you or different about you Two if you do you really have to get over it or correct it as quickly as possible the Third rule is that if you can't correct it or get over it You have to pretend that you have so that you can pass the fourth rule is that if you can't do any of this you should at least pretend that it's no longer an issue for you. Maybe it used to be, but it's, it's not an issue. And you should not show up, though, because it's very painful for us, because we can see right through you. And the fifth rule is that if you're going to insist on the right to show up, you should have the decency to be ashamed. And I think that that, from a very early age, is what we're up against. That we had the decency as good little boys and girls, good little children, to be ashamed of the fact that we were really destroying, had to obviously destroyed our parents with our neediness and our um, um, our our damagedness, and so um, that was why I think. That when the women's movement came along and everybody said, "Oh no, we all have that." That's sort of ground zero. Yeah, that's where we're going to start from. And little by little, we're going to we're going to stick together and we're going to take tiny little segments of you of your own emotional acre. You, they forgot to mention, get to have your own emotional acre, and you get to garden it or not garden it as as you choose, and people don't get to burst through the gates anymore and insist on you doing it their way, and um, you get to do it your way, and, and um, however you see it, However you see you, however you see the earth on which you stand, that's how we're going to do it. That's what radical self-acceptance means to me, is saying, okay, I'm going to stop trying to go. um, I'm going to stop trying to help other people with their emotional acre. I'm going to stop trying to get them to plant vegetables because I'm convinced that would make them happy. I'm going to stop trying to get them to do anything because I believe that my ideas are good ideas. You learn eventually, I think, in your teens that your help is really not very helpful and that it can actually be pretty toxic for people. And you certainly learn, learn as a parent. That first of all, your health is not helpful. And second of all, as they grow you know into teens and adults, you can, can no longer run along beside them with your juice boxes and chapstick, trying to you know coach them into doing what you're sure would be helpful. But that begins with doing that originally for your own self. You're not going to try to get better at doing what made everybody else so happy. You're not going to keep getting better and better what made your family feel better about itself. You're going to close the gate on your acre, and you're going to you know, relax your shoulders, and you're going to squiggle and get comfortable, and then you're going to start with what's right in front of you that you believe you're a truthful and
0: accurate narrator of. Okay, Annie, just two more things. One small, but it's about this issue of someone's own experience of their body. And you write that it's okay to pray for an awakening of acceptance around your body. And I'm wondering if you can give people some pointers on that. Someone, let's say, who's listening, who's hearing everything you're saying, but still just feels terrible about some aspect of their own physical self.
1: Well, a huge issue and obviously it has been for me and um, one thing i believe is that the willingness only comes from the pain and the willingness to change or to go very very deeply into the wound and to be available for the really perfect healing that is out there and within um, comes from getting to the point where you cannot see you don't care what anyone else thinks or if they stay with you or they leave or they never want to see you again, you're done. You're done with the shaming, you're done with, the you know, it's a like graft rejection when you aren't kind to your body, when you're not kind to your um, inside body. And, um, and when you get there, then again, back to what I was saying, is you start to take the action even if you don't really have a conviction that it will ever help and change. For me, prayer means... Um, Prayer is anything. Prayer is, is, prayer. you can pray about anything. And my belief is that you're heard and, and that something that I would call God for shorthand draws nearer and nods like Mary, Mother Mary, I love so much, she goes, yeah, and listens. And so you take the action. Well, for me, Uh, I've had quite a lot of uh, heavier women at my church who have wanted some help around this, and I've always said, well, if you invited our pastor, Veronica, who we all adore, over for lunch, would you say to her, well, I don't have that much time, let's stand in the kitchen, I got us each a tube of Pringles. Uh, I hope you like the barbecued ones and you wouldn't feel her standing up in the kitchen from a tube of Pringles even if you had forty five minutes you would have put beautiful food that you had washed if it needed to be washed and that you had cooked or or arranged on a plate for her and it might be very simple food which is what I like and it, but it might have several colors because you love her so much and so you put some grapes and and some ch- uh, plum tomatoes and some um, a couple different kinds that you put some butternut squash and you put that has parsley on it that you actually went to the trouble of taking 30 seconds to mince up some parsley to sprinkle on the butter you know you and you put a little bit of butter on it and you've made a little dressing on the side and um and you get a really cool cold fresh glass of water in your favorite glass right you don't get her the jelly glass you don't get her your um Uh, You know, you don't get her an old mug with a chip on the handle. You get her a beautiful mug, you get her a cup of tea, you get her a fresh glass of water. in your best glass, maybe you only have one of them and you give it to her. Um, And you sit down at the table and you have a really pretty napkin there for her. And then you you bless the food and, and you bless the companionship. And, um, and that's what we need to learn to do to ourselves, As we make those kind of plates of food for ourselves, that we get the one really, really good glass, that we make ourselves a lovely cup of tea in a really pretty mug. And, and little by little, I think the message becomes that we're worthy of that, and we're deserving of that, and we start to notice the softening inside of us of, um, of being loved and nurtured by our own selves you know you think oh it's just by yourself you know it's just you but you learn that that's where it's going to come from that's where the mothering is going to come from is from you and that's where the the you know you know another thing and i'm sure this is true for you tammy too is that when you're a girl and and maybe your mother had tiny problems with how you were turning out but your two best friends had mothers that just got you yeah. and they were yeah. the other mothers and they um and people will say oh that lee is her other mother and um, and though that was where I got a lot of my mothering from, my mother was my own mother who. Uh, uh, was very worried about who I was in the world and um, being accepted and stuff. And the other mothers got me, and they got my hair. My hair was like platinum blonde, like Marilyn Monroe. And that, all, and one of them said, you know, any woman on the peninsula would die to have hair your color, which hadn't really occurred to my mother. And through those other mothers, you learn that that's where the mothering is going to come from. And I think this huge step in the process of self um Acceptance, self-love, self-nurture comes from being your own other mother. Being the mother that can see that your hair is actually really beautiful. Being the mother that can see that, yeah, maybe you... um maybe you should be walking or could be walking a little bit more and you'd probably feel better in about ten different ways if you did. But um, but for right now, you and she are going to go out and have a treat somewhere together and you are going to damn well enjoy it. So um, that other mother, I've written about it somewhere, but that, that's been very, very important to me was to have had three other three other other mothers and I'm another mother now too.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is where just, actually I'd like I to end in this note. note of offering welcome to other people. In your book, Small Victories, you have a chapter called The Book of Welcome. And I thought in many ways, this is a key to self-acceptance for ourselves and others, this idea of offering welcome to others and receiving welcome from others. And I wonder if we could end, if you could talk, what would that mean for someone listening, how they could offer a sense of welcome to someone else and also receive welcome, maybe even from an unlikely place.
1: And extend welcome to their own mixed bag of radiant, confused, nervous, exuberant self. The Book of Welcome, I haven't thought of that, but it's it's like the the welcome is the great shalom. But if you grew up in certain families with, with alcoholism or mental illness or extremely high standards, of intellectual achievement, you—it was all pretty conditional. That if you were doing things a certain way and at a certain level, then then, there were, then the welcome was extended. <laughs> if you weren't having a lot of needs or feelings, then you were really welcome at the dinner table. If you were having needs or feelings, then it was a problem. And um, I grew up in a generation where kids were sent to their room without eating, and it, what a coincidence that I developed a tiny eat—you know—thirty-year eating disorder. But um, so, it, I mean, you've published so much about the subject of unconditional love, but uh, I know both of my parents really loved me, and the love was so often conditioned on my having done as well as they hoped I would do, or as well as anyone could possibly ever do in the history of all of life. When, uh, when we brought home B-pluses, it was a problem. I, I wrote in operating instructions, that I was 35 when I discovered that a B plus was a good grade. Uh, it hadn't come up, and um, uh, if I got a B plus, it was like, well, I don't understand why this isn't an A minus. And do you still have time, or can you do the report over? But if you got an A minus, it was just a trick anyway, because you, then it still wasn't an A. And so you were all—it's back to having understood that there was something defective to be corrected about yourself, and. Um, So the welcome begins with understanding that um, it was a very crazy sick system and that your survival depended on playing by those rules. And your survival doesn't depend on that anymore, and it's a new world, and you're a new you every day. You know, every day, like Augustine said, we wake up and we have to redo the union with God. There's no bank account that what you start over and you start over with you, and you do a little better, you do a little sweeter, you do a little bit more gentle, you put a couple more colors on the plate, and um and then buckle up, because it is going to change every single thing about the world.
0: Annie, thank you, honey. Thank You're you. Welcome. I know you love this quote from Ramdas, where we're each just walking each other home. And I feel like you being part of our self-acceptance summit is an act of generosity on your part to help walk Uh, with all of us. And so I thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I love you, Tammy. I love you too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world.